0: and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au.
1: Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode.
0: Good morning, Robert. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very, very well, Nasa. How are you? Are you enjoying our lockdown for
0: the COVID Mm. magnificent thing that's floating around the world? We're getting slowly more and more nuts, to tell you the truth, but thankfully the number is on their way down, so hopefully um, we can come out of it sooner than later.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what have we got on today?
0: We've got a f- another fantastic Palestinian woman. We're joined by Dr. Ronda abdel Fatah. Good morning, Rhonda.
2: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: It's our absolute pleasure, Rhonda. Rhonda, a question we ask each of our guests whenever they join us on Palestine, Remembered is to share their Palestine story. Everybody's got, every Palestinian's got a unique Palestinian story, but Can you take us through yours? Yes,
2: so um, I think most Palestinian stories need to start in the 40s. Um, And my father, it all starts with my father with me. Um, He's the Palestinian and my mother's Egyptian. He was born in 45. And um, up until 1967, he was in Palestine, My grandfather lost his job. He was working as a steamroller operator in Nazareth at the time that Israel was created in 1948. So he lost his job, which put a lot of pressure on my father's family economically. And so they made the decision like a lot of Palestinians did to send their sons to the oil-rich Gulf states. And so my Mm. uncle ended up in Kuwait. And then my father followed him um, and went to high school in Kuwait and was regularly visiting my grandmother and my aunts um, back in Palestine in the village of Burka which is in the West Bank and then in 1967 uh, my father and my uncle were in Kuwait and of course the six-day war occurred and my father was unable to return um, and my uncle as well. So my uncle stayed on in Kuwait, built a family there until he was kicked out the first Gulf War. My, um, my father got a um, a scholarship to Cairo University with the United Nations Refugee Works Agency. And I, and I have a photograph um, of that original letter offering him that scholarship. <laughs> so he went to, um, to Egypt and he studied there. And then it was basically trying to figure out where he was going to settle, where he was going to make a life for himself now that he could not return to Palestine. Um, and he ended up getting a scholarship and coming to Australia um, in the very early 70s. Uh, And the connection, of course, is that he was able to come to Australia in the early 70s because the Whitlam government had gradually abandoned the White Australia policy. And these sorts of global connections are really important, something that I came to understand later on in life, that these things are not isolated, of course, and that my father came here as a migrant on stolen land, land stolen by the empire that facilitated the, the theft of his land and dispossession of yeah. his land. And those those connections are so important when I think about my activism on this land and when I think about where blame lies, where accountability lies. Um, so he ended up making a life for himself here, met my mother here who, who you know, came with her family from Egypt after Jamal Abdel Nasser nationalised Egypt, which affected my um, my mother's middle-class family in Egypt. And again, it's always finding these connections that are so important. Palestine to me was something um, that didn't really understand growing up, felt like, you know, just, you know, somewhere my dad came from. What it actually meant in practical terms was that I had a grandmother and family in the Arab world who I couldn't communicate properly with, Um, you know, who we used to, when they would call and my father would, call us to come and speak to them. I would try and resist, you know, hide because my Arabic was so bad. I knew that they were there. I didn't understand why they were there and we were here. Um, and it was only when I, and even we visited Kuwait um, when I was in grade four in the 80s and, um, you know, in the, sorry, in the, um, yeah, in the 80s. And I still didn't understand what it all meant. It was only when I went to Palestine in the year 2000 with my parents um that I actually for the it changed my life Uh, up until then I had you know attended my father's um uh, these Palestinian gatherings the Palestinian club that uh, he had been a part of in Melbourne um and I remember distinctly uh ASIO coming to our house to ask my father if well, I didn't know then what he was asking, but I remember them coming. He tells told me later on that I it wasn't. Oh, he told me later on that it was because of um they were asking him, was this a uh, political club? You know, as if you could divorce politics.
1: Seriously. Wow. Yeah.
2: But I didn't understand then why they were there. Um I think my parents protected us from this. So it's these sorts of these sort of things that happen in the background that become so mundane and, and, and so normalised as Palestinians, this idea that you are always a threat, you are always subversive. Um, and in a way we are, <laughs> but um, it was Horrible just,
1: way to grow up though, isn't it? from a Yeah, from a child I mean,
2: to... it is, but I didn't understand it then. Like, my parents protected me. It was only until yeah. I visited Palestine with my family and I actually, it changed my life um, to actually, go to the place where your father was born and to see his house to walk in the garden where he could tell you stories and he's got an amazing memory of what had happened there Um, to go and visit the, the, the graveyard where my grandfather was buried and to be unable to find his grave because you know I've written about this before that occupation it steals it robs you of your land but it also robs you from your ability to to stay connected to those who are buried in your land. And so there was nobody there to look after his headstone and to look after his grave. And even the house was run down, dilapidated, neglected, and it's the most incredibly beautiful home.
1: Where, where was it? This?
2: this is in Burka in the West Bank. Okay. Okay. Um, and just, you know, to, at that time there was a settlement at the top of the hill It's since gone. But just, you know, witnessing at first hand that the checkpoints, the soldiers um, moving around the West Bank, we did also go to Tel Aviv and Yaffa and seeing the, the huge disparity, the, you know, it just brought alive to me so much. But what it also made me, it also crystallised for me what it means to be a Palestinian in the diaspora. And I understood why my father was never, never fully settled In Australia you know he always said to me his heart was there and I could never understand that even though he's now been in Australia longer than he ever was in Palestine I never understood that I thought it was just this romantic sort of memory of a place that you grew up in but you know to actually see firsthand the transformation in his entire persona when he was there and how I could see him just sink into that landscape as one. For me it was just overwhelmingly powerful. And this
1: is when you became completely, I suppose, Palestinian. That was what it all, all uh, started into
0: place, I suppose.
2: It really did, absolutely. Um that connection and I, and I'm privileged and grateful that I was able to to have that opportunity.
0: One of the things about uh diaspora and disconnection you talked about nobody tending your grandfather's grave. But it's the little things like you can take your kids to your first school, you can take them to you know, where you meet your husband, and, and, and that geography of your identity is yeah. connected to you. It's displaced because it's not supposed to be here, but you can actually connect them to it. Whereas my father and your father could never actually take us on the, where, yeah. in, in our developing years, on the geography tour of their lives.
2: That's, so, that's such an important point. Yeah. yeah. I, I certainly felt that, you know, this is going to sound very funny to your listeners, but I grew up in Melbourne. And then when I got married, I moved to Sydney. And I still feel, you know, Melbourneian And whenever we go to Melbourne, I always, like, take them on this pilgrimage of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and I insist, you know, like I hire a car and I take them. This is, you know, I take them. That's, this gold. that's
1: magnificent. Yeah.
2: And it was only when I moved to Sydney that I said to my dad, oh, my God, I kind of get it now. And he laughed. He said, you know, that's pathetic. But... But, you know, something as, as you know, s- stupid as moving from Melbourne to Sydney, and I felt displaced here, but because how much of your identity is rooted in childhood memory? Um, it's just something that is just so innate to, to who we are because we romanticise our childhoods. I mean, Melbourne to me is stuck in 2003 when I left, but, you know, uh, I, I understood how my father could never do that with me, ever. Yeah.
1: I was just going to say that I know that there's a lot of the older Palestinian men that would not go back to show their families because it was just too painful. So for you to have that opportunity, I think it's a really marvellous thing.
0: For a lot of Palestinians, their houses have been physically taken over. So where, you know, my, my dad's house is still deeply in the West Bank and, you know, theoretically part of Palestine. Randa's grandfather's house is dilapidated, but there are Palestinians who can go. The house is still there. The the lemon trees out the front. But the person in there, you know, is a descendant of somebody from Lithuania. Now, rather moving on, we had um, Benjamin Netanyahu, with his good mate Donald Trump, decided that they were going to annex parts of the West Bank, as if you know, de annexation hasn't really been happening, but they're going to do a, a legal annexation theoretically. Now, you and uh, a couple of other uh, people put together a statement, uh, called for artists to co-sign with you and had an extraordinary outcome. Close to a 1,000 people endorsed that letter with you. And do you want to take us through the challenge you had after getting that letter up?
2: It was actually after Nora Rakat, um, you know, who everyone must know, the US um, attorney and activist, after her nephew was murdered by Israeli soldiers at a checkpoint. And I was on Twitter and I I started to realise how there are these sort of well, it's something you realise as a Palestinian from the moment you encounter the media, but it just felt very salient there that there's these sort of pockets of of threads where this is very relevant, it's current, people are sharing it, and then there's just, you know, people that you admire on the left so much who are very vocal about human rights issues and racism for whom Palestine is completely absent. And we know them... You know, broadly speaking, as progressive except Palestine. But I thought there was something more to this. They, these were people who I, I suspected were deeply sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, and yet still wouldn't, didn't think to do anything about it in a public way. And I and I was speaking with Sarah Saleh about this, and we decided we wanted to test this. And I think you know uh, you you distribute your energies in terms of activism in different to different audiences and for me this is a very important audience it's the audience that we need to mobilize who would automatically because of their um resistance to settler colonialism and racism who would get it who would get the issues very clearly Um, it's not complicated but who need a bit of a push to have the courage to actually show their solidarity in a public way and i think that of course you know that kind of Um, courage often comes in numbers and so we thought well this is a prime opportunity with this um, annexation plan that we we bring together this statement and Michaela Sahar a Palestinian academic in Melbourne the three of us we we wrote this statement and we started to send it out and yeah this, the response was extraordinary um from you know first nations artists and academics um you know all around the country and it, it was very very quickly um the momentum i mean within the first day there were about a 400 signatures and then you, you know we understand what we're up against when it comes to the media we've been doing this for quite a while now but it was still to to encounter the stonewalling what and and just sheer ignoring us, was still very confronting because we thought, surely this will get over the line. Um, You know, it's not just me
0: and I. tell us what will get over the line. So you've got all the signatures, you've got the statement,
2: Yeah. So we have a statement. So I'm not asking anybody, I'm not asking an editor to run a feature article, not to do that work. I'm not asking them to edit an opinion piece. All I'm asking for them to do is to publish this statement. Um, And it's not something that's unusual. Open letters, statements get published all the time. And indeed, we were looking at what sort of statements were being published at that time. And there were many statements um, in various news outlets, The Guardian, um, Sydney Morning Herald, Saturday Paper, which were being published. Uh, We were either either told that uh, it wasn't a local enough issue, it needed to be pinned to something local, um, or we were told that, there wasn't enough space or capacity actually the word was capacity and when we pushed back you know well what kind of capacity do you need it's not about space because it's an online publication you just put it online Um, and it's not about uh, labor because you're just publishing an existing statement with some signatures Um, and then for me the most uh, the most troubling part of this which speaks to a very a much wider problem and a structural issue and a very difficult one in Australia particularly, is that the Saturday paper, Schwartz Media, um, completely ignored us. And I'm not saying that they ignored one email. I mean, we went hard. Emails, DMs, Twitter. um, And what we're talking about here is uh schwartz media which publishes the quarterly essay the monthly um black ink so all the growing up in australia books growing up aboriginal in australia growing up asian in australia and so forth and the saturday paper so it has a monopoly over the progressive intellectual um voices in australia and indeed there's a huge circulation of those voices within those publications so it's very very respected in that sense but it is obviously obviously silencing palestinian voices um and that's because you know uh, the owner is um of, of of schwartz media is a zionist and that you know it's on the record and so it's this this really difficult space we're in where the people a lot of the people who signed that statement are also published in these publications and yet when they aligned themselves as palestine it was still ignored um, in the end uh, the only, pub, uh, the only um, outlet that published it in Australia was Overland, which has a fantastic reputation for publishing marginalised voices. And then in the end, um, I had it picked up in New Arab. I got an, an op-ed published in the New Arab in Al Jazeera. Um, but what we right. had, had to do in the end was uh, buy ad space. And um, it was actually um, an anti-Zionist Jewish, very um, high-profile Jewish um, woman. I don't want to say her name just in case, but who approached me and suggested that and said, surely if they won't publish it, they can't reject, um, you know, the money. Advertising to- money. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's just, we did end up um, raising about $13,000 very quickly. Um, so there was an energy and enthusiasm about seeing this published. But it is so bittersweet that we had to raise that money in order to publish something that should have been published for free. Um, and so this just... I'm sure,
1: if you tweaked, I'm sure if you tweaked the letter and just added a different country in there, it would have gone yeah. through pretty easily.
2: Absolutely, because the names alone, in in terms of the signatory list, um, uh, you know, if you want to be cynical, uh, the kind of names that any publication would want to attach themselves to anyway. So it was a very, just such a clear signalling that we will not publish something about Palestine.
0: Yeah. Sad and disgusting. But thankfully, we did get it up and it was published uh, in the Fairfax in uh, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was was wonderful to see it, you know, in black and white on, you know, uh, it was, like I said, really bittersweet and it's not over yet. I mean, I think that when it comes to the the lack of choices in Australia, in terms of those sort of intellectual so-called progressive publication opportunities and outlets, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of exposing how, um, how they silence Palestine and what, and what is the, what is the consequence of that? How do we hold them to account when there are no alternatives? Um, and for me, this is probably the space where BDS is tested the most, um, really, because you are. Am I asking? Am I asking people? Are we asking people to boycott um, a publication, and in order to pressure them to publish Palestine? Do I want a Zionist to cynically and hypocritically publish my voice? Um, or are we asking them to completely boycott a publication where there's no other alternatives, really? Um, well, you know, they've make-
1: boycotted you, haven't they?
2: Absolutely, exactly. So they're,
1: do- they're doing exactly what they don't agree with, but it's okay for, for yeah. them to do it.
2: Yeah, that's a perfect way to put it, yeah. Well,
0: that leads back to that Harper letter, you know, the silencing of voices, as yeah. if the people that sign that letter have uh, any trouble getting published. <laughs> exactly. But on the talking, you started out talking about colonialism and, you know, the reality of Palestinians, the ethnically cleansed by settler colonialism and now being settlers ourselves in in a settler colonial society and the intersectionality of our struggles with our Indigenous First Peoples here. You're on a forum on the 29th of August uh, at 7.30pm, people can go to bdsaustralia.net.au and find out some more details then we'll put it on the podcast as well but you've got a, a fantastic crew that you're with there with omar baruthi amy mcguire yourself and professor tony birch moderated by hibber photo. so that, that looks like a great panel oh,
2: i'm so excited <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's another thing when you're a pallet you get so excited about panels <laughs> <laughs> it's like something we get so excited about the footy but we get so excited about panels on boycott divestment and sanctions and intersectionality of indigenous struggles (laughs) so it's called countering colonialism and dispossession tell us a bit about it
2: yeah so it's we're really it, it it stems from this um and i think you know last year which you were heavily involved in the black palestinian solidarity conference that was held in melbourne um it was really something that energized so many of us that we need to do this more often to to really recalibrate recalibrate the way that we um, engage in our activism as Palestinians on stolen land, and that we that we don't align ourselves with the state, you know, with a white supremacist, you know, state that that constantly reinforces settler colonialism, but that we actually understand that our solidarities need to be. Um, need to be nurtured among First Nations um, our peoples. And because of the, you know, we share, we share, um, of, of course, in different ways, different manifestations and expressions of it, but it is ultimately a settler colonial logic. Um, and that that was, you know, really, it's really exciting to see that this is happening Um, more often, and this is an amazing opportunity, Omar Barghouti, who founded BDS, um, and to have, you know, these amazing Indigenous speakers as well, Professor Tony Birch, like you said, and Amy McGuire, who, you know, I'm really hopeful that this is going to be part of of an emerging conversation for the next generation of activists. to, to actually really see how that kind of solidarity is a force to be reckoned with. And I might say that it, it we can't ever forget to talk about the Zionists because, um, you know, recently there was an article by um, a, a call in an op-ed, I think um, by um, a. A, a Jewish lawyer who I have a lot of respect for in terms of, of his human rights work. But it was this um, call for um, Australian Jews to align themselves and support Indigenous struggles and that this is something that's been historically, um, uh, you know, something that they have historically done and need to do more often. And, of course, the irony of it is you mm-hmm. can't help but feel the cynicism about that in which, you know, performing the, performing the, the, the role of an ally to a colonized people while supporting um, the colonization of Palestinians and so yeah it is but it it really does speak to something that's very sinister that's happening um a lot a a lot in australia the 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 co-option of indigenous struggles by zionists um, and it's something that's it's very very difficult to expose as well because there's a lot of complications with that Um, but I feel that what we are doing is genuine and sincere. Um, we're not out to, to do this as a PR exercise. We're not doing it to wash over any any crimes. Um, uh, it is something that is, that is emerging because there is a real connection and shared struggle there.
0: Yeah, I mean, anybody that does any level of investigation beyond the Herald Sun and 3AW and Channel 9 we will know that the, the struggles of the Palestinians for self-determination are exactly the same as our Indigenous brothers and sisters here.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so this is just, you know, it, you know, it's something that I have to say that I think the conversations around this now and understanding about it in terms of activist circles is so much more refreshing and sophisticated um, and... And it's happening more now than when I first started in activism. Um, And that speaks to just changes in generation, changes in the struggle and and challenges that we have, and also social media, which has completely transformed the way that we can establish solidarities, that we don't need to have white gatekeepers to do that anymore, Um, that we can actually uh, circumvent and subvert those white gatekeepers and make these sorts of solidarities. And the statement is a perfect example of the way that we were able to do that.
1: Do you do you think though with social media that people will sit behind a computer rather than get to the streets? Do you think that they like something or they share something on Facebook? Do you think that's enough?
2: Yeah, it's there there is a lot around that sort of clicktivism and the keyboard activism, and I think it it there's definitely an element of that. Um, and everybody, including you know, including us, have all been guilty of sharing something or liking something, and then you, you don't take it any further. Um, and that's why the real test is in relationships it's in sticking it out for the long haul it's in real change so beyond I mean the Black Lives Matter um, you know and peace police abolition and police brutality protests are a perfect example of the way that you get these waves of um, support and, and shows of solidarity but then it wanes you know and and I think it's it, I think we need to think about how you can translate your solidarity into practical and long-term substantive, like, change and action. And a lot of people don't do that, but then there are those who do.
0: Well, interestingly, you just spoke about the Black Lives Matter and and a connection that I've made with Zionists and Zionism now trying to get back into that Indigenous space and Black Lives space is that Zionists see themselves as white. They, You know, the whole concept of Israel is we're a country like Europe, like North America, like Australia, New Zealand. We're like you guys, not like those brown people. And there, 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 there's a disconnect. You know, progressive Jews absolutely on side. They're at, you know, the Invasion Day marches of the bus, etc. But, you know, you proper right-wing Zionists. There's a disconnect there. You know, we're not so sure about Black Lives, about Black Lives Matter. In fact, in America, you know, they've c- called the BLM movement um, anti-Semitic, and, yeah. and which has been it's fantastic for us because we know what the truth is. Um, to the point where now there's a growing movement in uh, America to move away and disassociate themselves from the ADL, the Anti Defamation League. So, which, you know, we That's have a similar, yeah, a similar group here, the Benet Brith, and the guys um, that do that terrible work. Great work when they're talking about anti Semitism, but how often they politicise that into BDS is um, anti Semitic. You know, any expression of solidarity with the Palestinian people is anti Semitism. It's a real conundrum for them. We've got a few minutes to go. We've got the tragedy in, in Lebanon. And one of the things, you know, because Zionism just doesn't know what to do with itself, the mayor of Tel Aviv decided that he's, the right thing for him to do would be to put the um, Palestinian, uh, the Lebanese flag on town hall there in in uh, Lebanon. And then there was, a, a, on you know one of our dear friends' pages, Samah wrote something. And then a whole bunch of um, Zionists in there saying, why wouldn't you take our aid? Um, you know, like we're, we're, we're denied our agency to say no to somebody who's killed and oppressed us for tens of years, you know, this concept of aid washing. Do you want to make a comment on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just appalling. Like it really says something that we, have, we are in a situation where Israel expects gratitude for this lighting up of the flag in Tel Aviv. Um, even as it continues its occupation and murder of Palestinians and home demolitions, it, it really goes to the heart of the racism that, uh, that that just pulses through the whole Zionist project, which sees us as completely divorced of any sense of self-respect or agency or humanity. That we would be so desperate that we that that we could not that we that we would not be able to. M- Make these distinctions, you know. Even in this tragedy, we still have pride and dignity, and mm. they even seek to take that away from us. Um, and it's, you know, it's it, it's something that it's not just a conversation that's happening overseas and and the shock horror that that we wouldn't be grateful for this, but also, you know, even in Australia, when you had the project and we Ali interviewing a Lebanese um, interviewee, and uh, the interviewee. You know, honestly, saying most people um, would have ex- assumed that it was Israel because of the the clear history of Israeli belligerence and aggression. Yeah, and and that now has become a story of Zionist and Zionist pain, anti-Semitism, and it's being taken further. This, so we know that it's a constant centering of the Zionist. And and the last point is that any opportunity is being used as a Hasbara as propaganda, and I just think. It's not even so much appalling anymore as it is so, so transparently pathetic. Um, you know, that the people can see through this. Um, so I think that in the end they're just uh, exposing the, the lengths to which they will attempt to whitewash their crimes. Um, and that they do not see that we have any dignity or pride. And the Arab people continue to say, no, we do. we're not going to be, we're not going to, you can't take that away from us.
0: We've got to finish there, but just one final comment. We had the aid was conditioned. Some of the aid from Israel said, we'll send aid, but you've got to leave the Hebrew on there. We want them to know it's from, ours, from us. Oh, the, there was a fantastic tweet, and by fantastic, was immediately or quickly deleted by some Zionist group saying, you know, the world should give aid, but it should be conditional upon the disarmament of Hezbollah. Any chance to demonise and divert. Aid should be just aid for aid's sake. Exactly. We don't want want any of your own. Just stop killing our kids. That would be the first step.
2: Exactly, exactly.
0: Rhonda, thanks so very much. Listeners, The Saturday, August the 29th, bdsaustralia.net.au, bdsaustralia.net.au. You can find more details there. I look forward to that. Rhonda, thank you again, and we look forward to speaking to you again in in the future.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure.
0: We'll speak again. Thank you. Another phenomenal Palestinian woman, Dr. Rhonda Abdel-Fateh. Be sure to go to bdsaustralia.net.au to register for the buck palestinian forum countering colonialism and dispossession saturday august 29 at 7 30 pm bdsaustralia.net.au remember free palestine